Well, good afternoon, brethren, and happy Sabbath to all of you. I hope that you are have had a, a very pleasant Sabbath up to now. It's a really a privilege to be back with you once again and to share the Sabbath with you. I must add, however, that this is not exactly what I had in mind when uh, I was anticipating getting a chance to have to be with you at services again. But even though we have to do it spread across the, this part of North Carolina and go through uh, the uh, technology available to us, it's still a privilege to, sh- to share the Sabbath with all of you. Well, Passover is now but three days away. We've heard about preparing for the Passover for the last two months or so, and maybe longer. That means we've had 10 or 11 sermonettes and sermons related to Passover and encouraging us to examine ourselves carefully to see or to be sure that we are properly prepared for Passover. And perhaps now that it's imminent, again somewhat upon us, three days away, we may still be asking ourselves what more can we do in order to be prepared properly for Passover, for this particular Passover. Because we want to be careful that we are ready for that. Let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. And you may know this and not need to turn to it. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, we get this admonition from Paul, which was... At this particular time, he was talking about, it was around a Passover time when he was writing Corinthians. He tells us in verse 5 of chapter 13, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, that is, try yourselves. Ask yourselves some hard questions, some difficult questions about your life and about how you're obeying God. He says, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? So he is telling us that we need to be able to see that Christ is living his life in us. That we are what we profess to be, that we are Christians. But in doing so and recognizing that, yes, we should be, we are living a life that defines us as a Christian. We're also, in that examination, we are going to see things that need to be changed, that we're still falling somewhat short of Jesus Christ's example, that we, as sin is defined, the word sin is defined as missing the mark. We are still missing the mark and the example that Jesus Christ set for us. And he gives us then a serious and sobering admonition that if Christ is not in us, we are disqualified. And we want to be sure when we see ourselves that we can see Christ in us and recognize that there are things that still need to change and we are going to work on those and make changes. So this afternoon, I would like to discuss three areas of our spiritual lives that each of us should consider and examine as we approach Passover. Now, the first point, and I want to make this a question, is how seriously 
do you and I take the admonition to watch? And we hear the word watch. Most of us, I'm sure, relate that to watching for the signs of the end of the age. But how seriously do we take this? Now, you may think this point or this question is a bit odd, since we are in the midst of the worst and most dramatic crisis that the vast majority of us have ever experienced. There may be some few of us as brethren, I don't know, here even, that maybe has some recollection of World War II or the immediately aftermath. But most of us uh, were not cognizant of what was going on in World War II. We've heard about it, we've seen it, we've watched the movies, we've watched the accounts, but none of us, the vast majority of us again, have not experienced this kind of crisis in our lifetime. So, but I would like for us to note what the Bible tells us about our future. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 And we'll read just a few of the verses here. In Matthew 24, beginning in verse 3, it says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Christ answers then and says, Take heed that no one deceives you, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. These are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So the Bible tells us there are going to be all kinds of problems. We know right now wars and rumors of wars. Uh, There have been, it seems more recently, there have been a a growing number of earthquakes. And certainly now we're in the midst of this coronavirus or uh, COVID-19 crisis that again is something that's affecting the entire world, and many of our nations have been brought to their knees, it seems, economically and socially, in order to uh, fight this particular problem. And Mr. Weston, in his sermon last week, made, and I, I will paraphrase his comment, that as bad as this is, this isn't the end. It's just a warm-up to what is yet coming. Now, I'm pretty sure that by now, all of us would agree that this this crisis with COVID-19 is quite the warm-up. It has dramatically affected our lives. We are not assembling together at the high school. We are meeting online, as we say. And our activities at headquarters are limited. We're all working from home. Many of you are working from home. Some few of you apparently have have lost jobs. So it's dramatically affected our lives and the lives of 
our fellow citizens, the country, and the world. But it's just a warm-up. So I'll ask you again, how seriously have we taken the admonition to watch? I began hearing this admonition back in 1965-66 when I first began attending church in Columbus, Ohio. Now, in reality, I have to admit, that didn't mean a great deal to me at the time. I still had uh, what was to be unrealized aspirations of becoming an engineer. And the end seemed uh, a long way off, even though it still might happen in my lifetime. But when I was 18, 19, and 20, that still seemed like a long way off. And for that matter, it might not even come in my lifetime. Well, as it's turned out, it has been a long time. It's been about 54 or 55 years since I first heard the admonition to watch. And the end is still not here. We're still here anticipating what the future might hold to us. However, I want to draw your attention to something. Let's turn over to Mark 13. We realize Mark 13 is a parallel account to Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And I'll just summarize here again uh, in Mark 13, verses 1 through 27, that here Christ, once again in an account, is given where he gives a concise report, if you will, or a concise account of what is much more detailed in the book of Revelations about what can be expected as a sign of the end of the age. And Mark, as did Matthew, he talks about false teachings, he talks about wars, he talks about earthquakes, famines, pestilences, and persecution. And again in verse 8, he does point out, these are the beginnings of sorrows. Just the beginnings. And of course, they've asked the question, well, when is this going to come about? When, How will we know this is happening? And so he says in verse 28, Mark 13, verse 28, says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, these earthquakes, these this pessimists, uh, the wars and rumors of wars and the false teachings. When you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. And then he adds in verse 32, But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Christ was saying, I don't know exactly when it will happen. But only the Father. They wanted to know when these things would happen, and Christ just gave them signs that would indicate when this was going to happen. But he could not definitely tell them exactly when it was going to happen. And then in verse 33, he adds, Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house, and gave authority to his servants and to each his work, 
and commanded the the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. So he gives a warning here to watch and pray. Pray that we can discern the signs of the time. We can discern when these signs clearly indicate we are approaching the end of the age. Now, let's let's turn over to Luke 21, again to the parallel account that Luke composed. In Luke 21, we'll pick it up in in verse 31. Yeah, Luke 21, verse 31. And again, Christ is being quoted here. He says, So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But take heed to yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come on, it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. So I think it's noteworthy That is, he mentions this, when you see all these things happening, that you'll know that the kingdom of God is near. But then he adds to verse 34, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. Indicating that even in the midst of this kind of turmoil, of wars and rumors of wars, and and earthquakes and famines and pestilences, even in the midst of all that turmoil, people could still be weighed down and giving in to the cares of this life and somehow be distracted from the reality that Christ is about to return. And again, it may seem odd right now that in the midst of all this that we would let this distract uh, distract us from watching. Probably we are watching more intently right now than many of us ever have. But how seriously have we taken that before? Perhaps you've never noted the timing of of these three accounts. And it's the same account, the same record. Perhaps you've never noted the timing of this account. Because we refer to these scriptures often in our writings and in our sermons without always specifically noting their setting and their timing. Let's turn back, if you will, again to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, in verse 1. And Mark's account points out that after two days, it was the Passover. In the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take him by trickery or by deception and put him to death. How many of us have ever noted that 
this warning about the end of the age was given just before Christ's last observance of Passover. And he's giving them these messages, saying, here you need to be watching, knowing that in a couple of three days, he was not going to be with them. He was going to be crucified and buried. And this warning was given at Passover. And at least to me, he seems a little bit beyond coincidence that the target dates or the general dates of two to three weeks from now is when this particular problem for the United States is supposed to peak. It will happen right in that, that, that peak period will come right in the middle of the Days of Unleavened Bread. So we should be watching and we should be careful that we do that. We are the ones, brethren, who have been given a better understanding of prophecy. Back in Second Peter chapter 1, just want to note that, in Second Peter chapter 1, in verses 16 through 21, 16 through 21 of Second Peter chapter 1, Peter's writing, and he wants to confirm his testimony that he knows what he's talking about. He was a, a personal witness of Jesus Christ. And he says here in verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And the margin on this uh, points up where it says, we have the prophetic word confirmed. An alternate translation is, we also have the more sure prophetic word. We understand prophecy better than most. But what he's also saying here is, we have the word of prophecy confirmed, pointing out that we saw all the prophecies given in the Old Testament. We saw all of these prophecies about a Messiah fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We have no doubt that he was the Son of God, and he was the Messiah, and that he is going to return. He's going to come again. And we understand the prophecies that God has given to us are going to come to pass. We have a better understanding about prophecy than almost anyone. So all the prophecies concerning Christ were fulfilled. And he says then again in verse 19, which you do well to heed. We should be paying close attention to what we know is prophesied in the near future. And we should be watching. And the warning to be, to be watching came at Passover. I think it's also worthy of noting that the expanded account we find in Matthew 24 and 25, two chapters that are almost entirely what we would call red letter 
verses where Christ is quoted, things he said. You know, from my uh, my study and my review of the scriptures, that this is the uh, third most uh, detailed record of Christ's words, and third behind the accounts given in Matthew five, six, and seven, and what is called the the uh, Olivet uh, sermons, or the Sermon on the Mount, and then of course what Christ is where Christ is quoted in John. 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And in Matthew 24 and 25, it includes all this prophecy and the parables and a reminder that we should be watching and always praying. Again, in closing this particular point, let's turn back to Mark 13. And we'll read one scripture that I passed over earlier. Mark chapter 13 And he says in in verse 35, he says, watch therefore. And then he adds something very emphatic in verse 37. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. So Christ is very emphatically telling us that you and I should be very diligent in watching the signs at the end of the age. And at Passover time, and especially with what we're going through right now, at Passover time, the Passover season, this should be a stern reminder that you and I must keep our spiritual eyes wide open, trying to discern the times in which we live and and what is happening in the world, knowing that when these things come to pass, we are in fact looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. This pandemic... And this coming Passover season should remind us to be ever watchful of the fulfillment of prophecy that will lead up to the return of Jesus Christ. You and I must do all we can to stay close to God so that we can, in fact, recognize the signs when they're there and as they come to pass. And, of course, that you and I can be counted worthy to escape the things that are going to happen. Right, our second point, this is pretty pretty basic and straightforward, but I think nonetheless it is a simple recipe or a simple outline that will help us examine ourselves thoroughly and I could say somewhat quickly between now and, and uh, the Passover in three days, but It's also mentioned by Dr. Douglas Winnell in his comments for the week in the world ahead. But I'd already prepared this this point, and so I want to share it with you anyway. But that is to review each of the Ten Commandments, to go through them one by one, to read them, the account there in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. These commandments help us define sin. It tells us, what we are to do and what we are not to do. And we are told that if we transgress these commandments, we're sinning, we're missing the mark. So it is worth taking the time to go through those commandments one at a time and ask ourselves again the hard questions of how am I doing in regard to this particular commandment 
that God has laid down and expects all of us to obey. In the first commandment, he tells us, you shall have no other gods before me. That we should not let anything or anyone come between us and God. Not have any separation from Him. Anything that's more important. Not a relative. Not a child. Not a mate. Not a job. Not anything. We are be, should be told in Luke, we were told that we, when we count the cost, that we are to love God more than anything else. More than anyone else. And so we ask ourselves, are we allowing anything, any activity, any pursuit, any person to interfere with our relationship with God? And again, knowing ourselves, things we still need to work on, we can be honest with ourselves. Hopefully we are asking God to help us see ourselves as He sees us. And so we want to ask ourselves hard questions and be honest with ourselves. How are we doing in relation to this first commandment? Is there anything that's coming between me and our Father in heaven? Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself any carved image and bow down to them, nor serve them. Now, for us today, this may seem a little far-fetched. We don't have idols. We don't have carvings. Uh, we don't have pictures of Christ in our homes. Uh, as many of the churches, almost all of the, the traditional Christian churches have, they have the stained glass windows, uh, they actually have statues, and in some cases, uh, they pray to those, to the beings they think in, are in heaven, that those statues represent. And yet, God tells us we are not to do any such thing. And for us, this may, I think, the spiritual application much. Uh, it's a, a, it goes in tandem with the first commandment that. Are we allowing anything to come between us and God that if that thing is physical, it becomes the idol. It becomes a carved image. If it's someone or something, whether it be a job, again, or whether it be some physical asset that we might want, and we'll get to that with the uh, 10th commandment. But I think the, the, the second commandment goes in tandem with the first then the third commandment, so you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's so common in our society. So common. So you can hear it anywhere you go. You can hear it in your grocery stores. You can hear someone take God's name in vain, even on the streets when you're walking. It, it, no one or very few people, it seems, uh, have any compunction or a second thought about taking God's name in vain. It's all around us. Now the problem with that is when it is so common, it sometimes can easily creep into our own language in moments of frustration or in moments of anger. 
we say things that we ought not say. And the God, the Bible tells us in, 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 with that account in Exodus that He will not hold us blameless. If we do that, we have to repent of that. But such language, as pervasive as it is, we have to be very careful to not allow that ubiquitous misuse of God's name to become part of our language and our manners. Because it seems that no one is really that very careful about taking God's name in vain, or does it bother them? The fourth commandment is just to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Something we do every week, something we're doing right now, we're doing today. As God commanded, we're having an assembly, albeit spread out. We're having an assembly coming together to worship Him on His Sabbath. We are to have a commanded convocation. We are doing that. And we began keeping the Sabbath last night at sunset. And we'll maintain keeping it until sunset this evening. We do it every week. And perhaps it can become so common to us that we are not as careful, again, as we ought to be in keeping it holy. It is holy time. That is, it is set aside for a special, particular, specific purpose. When we are to worship God, when we are to remember who He is, who we are, we are His servants, we are His bondservants, like being the bondservant of Jesus Christ. We are God's people. And how we keep the Sabbath, how we observe this, how carefully we observe it, is a testimony that we are, in fact, the people of God. It's a sign between our Father and us. So we must remember to keep the Sabbath day. We ask ourselves, are we careful? Do we ever fudge on sunset Friday evening? Do we let other interests distract us during the Sabbath and keep take our minds away from this particular meaning of the day? Do we spend time with our own thoughts that are really not relevant to the Christian life. Not that we have to be quoting verses all the time or singing hymns all day long, but that we don't let the cares of this life encroach upon our time to commune with God, to think the right kinds of thoughts, to fellowship properly with our brethren. Albeit right now we, we do that by phone or by text uh, or by email. Uh, we stay in touch with one another. That, uh, but when we're at services together, we have a chance to fellowship. We have a chance to be with one another, to share a meal, to share refreshments, and enjoy being around people of like mind. But do we ever take these things too casually? Because we shouldn't do that. We must remember that it is holy time, and we must observe it properly in order to be sure that it stays holy time. The fifth commandment, is about honoring your father and mother. Some of us uh, don't have living parents anymore. They're, they're deceased. But many of us still have our parents. Maybe only one parent living. But how careful are we to show honor and respect to them? Whether it be Mother's Day, Father's Day, or both. Or simply taking the time to make sure we stay in touch. Because in many cases, our parents live away from us. They're miles away. They're hundreds of, or thousands of miles away. They may be in a different country. Do we 
make sure we take the time to stay in touch and check on them and show honor to them and show them that we love them. And, of course, if we're younger, we're young people, and we're living at home still under the, 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 the control, if you will, or under the responsibility of, of our parents, are we, as young people, showing honor to them? Are we obedient? Are we cooperative? Are we trustworthy? Do we show that we honor them by our example and things we do when they're not around? Do we show honor to them by being their offspring? So when someone sees us, they see our parents in us. I know that uh, as a boy that, you know, someone would say, well, uh, and my father was nicknamed Red. He had red hair, uh, reddish, deep reddish hair. And he they would say, are you Red Strain's boy? Well, if I was in a compromising situation of some sort, uh, I'd have to remit, admit reluctantly, well, yes, I am, knowing that my father would find out about that. But hopefully in a good circumstance. I was happy to say, yes, I'm Red Strain's son because that would let them know that I, I was happy to be his son and that what I was doing hopefully would honor him. So as you know, holding up, if you will, the family name, if our young people are honoring their parents, they are holding up the family name. Sixth commandment, he says, you shall not murder. And we know that it's not right to kill. But Christ, of course, expanded on this and all of these commandments spiritually in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, that it's not right to hate. That to hate someone is the spirit of murder. And allowing a, a spiteful, a vengeful attitude of, 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 of hate is, in God's eyes, equivalent to murder. So do we control our emotions in that regard to where we don't let our uh, discomforts, our disappointments, our uh, problems ever induce us to think that kind of ill will towards some other individual? In the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. He tells us that in Matthew, he also tells us that beyond just the physical issue of committing adultery, that we should not allow our minds to be lustful. We should not look on some other human being, male or female. If we're married, we don't look on, or even if we're single, we don't look on someone of the opposite sex and with a lustful thought. That's the spirit of fornication or the spirit of adultery. And again, because this particular kind of sin is so pervasive, it's easy to fall into that trap. The world at large is trying its best to be nothing but alluring, to pull us away from the right kind of images. The advertising world, the entertainment world, makes it sound like illicit sex of all flavors doesn't really have any consequence. There's always, it's seeming, there's almost always a good ending that somehow, in spite of the fornication or the adultery, things work out for the good guys or the, uh, the, the stars, 
of the entertainment that is going on. But in reality, that's not the case. Giving in to that kind of conduct only brings misery and suffering, broken homes, damaged children, damaged adults, husbands and wives. And God says we should be careful not to allow that to enter our lives even on a spiritual plane, to closely guard our minds, to bring every thought into captivity unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. And that's a big challenge in the world around us because the world flaunts this particular commandment, much as it does the commandment about taking God's name in vain. It just flaunts this particular commandment of not committing adultery. The eighth commandment says, you shall not steal. So, we don't rob banks. We don't take other people's belongings, hopefully. But we can fudge, if you will, on expense reports. Do we do that? Do we, uh, if someone gives us an excess amount of change, would we pay a bill? Which we used cash. Do we get too much money back? We know it's too much. Do we honestly return the money back to the proper owner? We certainly should do that. We probably don't have a huge problem with being theft, being thieves. And, but nonetheless, we need to think about it. Are there ways in which we are being deceitful and maybe not giving a full day's work? We want a full day's pay, but are we earning our keep? Are we earning our wage? Are we giving our employer a fair return on his the salary that he gives us or that she gives us? Are we, in fact, maybe giving more? We give a little more time. We want to be careful to more than pay back in effort what we're paid for. We get to work a little bit early. We work a little bit late. And we don't expect a penny for every second that we work. And certainly we don't want to shortchange our employer by not working and maintaining a, a, fair, a fair performance for our wage. Ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And more in terms of the common usage, we don't lie. We find in Proverbs that God says lying is an abomination. He hates lying. He hates for anyone to be deceitful and not be honest, even to the point that if what we have to admit on occasion, is to our own hurt. If we've done something wrong and we're asked about it, we don't want to, to lie about that and try to hide our guilt. We want to be honest and apologize. We make mistakes. Sometimes they're not deliberate, not on purpose. We make mistakes and we have to own up to our mistakes. We do not want to lie. It's a uh, Years ago, I took an aptitude test. Well, actually, it was more like a uh, uh, one of these uh, personality profile tests. And the question uh, you can't you can't beat the systems they put into these uh, these profile exams. The qu- one question was, "Have you ever lied?" Well, the answer to that is 
Yes. Because anybody that says no is lying. Because all of us have lied at some point in our lives. And maybe you lied many, many times. And then later in the in this profile, uh, the other question came up says, Are you a liar? And I stopped and thought, Well, I admitted being a lie that I told a lie. Does that make me a liar? In other words, someone that is given to lying. What is the definition of being a liar? And just gave me uh, gave me pause to think that yes, if I've lied to some degree or another, no matter how infrequently that may have happened, I am at least again to some degree or another, I am a liar. And if you say yes to that, of course, when you're looking at the people who are going to review this profile, it's like, well, how big a liar is he? Is he an inveterate liar, or does he only lie in the worst of circumstances, uh, or is it just something he does on a rare occasion? But God says we should not lie. We should not be deceitful. We should not misrepresent. We should not unduly exaggerate in order to, to shade a point or whatever, or to uh, under, under, say, under uh, exaggerate in order to belittle something. And finally, the Tenth Commandment, it says, you shall not covet. Which, going through the examples that are there in in, uh, in Exodus, it talks about coveting a house or someone else's possession. It comes right down to we should not have an inordinate desire for something that is wrong, nor something that we can't afford to have, and or something that's it's wrong and we shouldn't have it. Uh, there's nothing wrong in having the desires for, let's say, certain things that we want. We're willing to work for it, that we're going to work toward this goal. But it doesn't become, goes back to, to, to uh, the second commandment, it doesn't become an idol. We don't seek this thing to the detriment of our spiritual lives. We don't have such an inordinate desire for some physical thing that we don't, pray as much as we should. We don't study as much as we should. That we, maybe once in a while, we would work on the Sabbath in order to not lose our job because we want certain things beyond just physical security. Either we should not have it because it's wrong or it's something that we can't afford right now. And so we lust after it. We we think about it far too much. Beginning of having certain, wanting certain things, certain uh, comforts of life, creature comforts of this life, you can work for it, you can plan for it, and if they're affordable, then it's, it's certainly in balance. These things are okay to have, but God tells us that if it becomes an inordinate desire, it's sin, and it's this tenth commandment, as Paul points out, that if he didn't had didn't had not been made to understand the spiritual implications of, of coveting. He would not have known sin. The 10th commandment, in it, it helps embody the other nine. Helps these things, bring those things into focus. So we can ask ourselves some hard questions about these 10 commandments as well. Part of our examination leading up to Passover. The third point, and I want to call this point 
Are we listening? Are we listening? That might sound, again, a bit odd for a title of a point, but this has to do specifically with those whom God has chosen to lead his work. Now, what we'll go through here could apply to anyone, and in particular I want to focus on this, but could apply to any one of the evangelists that God has ordained to that position. We have four evangelists in God's church right now. And God has chosen them to be in that position. And they are the leaders of the work. However, I want to illustrate this point even more specifically through some of the messages given recently by Mr. Weston, our presiding evangelist. I'm sure, well, I surely hope that all of us pray for Mr. Weston every day, asking God to guide him, inspire him, support him in the many responsibilities that he's he's been given to carry and, and to fulfill, whether it be writing articles, giving sermons, making decisions, reviewing department operations, how we're going to preach the gospel, even again recently bringing these daily updates uh, during this particular crisis where he's staying in touch with uh, the, all the membership. If we look at that, and each day we stay current on that, but even people outside the church are following it. We're asking God to inspire his speaking and inspire his writings, the articles in the Living Church News or in the Tomorrow's World. And as we do so, I'll ask another question. Besides praying for him, do we, do you ever wonder what is on Christ's mind regarding the church, which is his body? What is Christ thinking about? If so, if you think, if you ever ask yourself that question, then we all should be paying attention, special attention, to what God inspires through Mr. Weston. Now, what's the point I want to make here? Now, and I want to draw our attention to the fact that recently, Mr. Weston has been has focused on a vital point that I think deserves examination and review as we lead into Passover. Recently, two of the last four sermons he's given, two of those sermons, and also then articles he's written for the Living Church News, deal with Satan's power and his methods to deceive, and discusses specifically uh, the risk of, of technology. The sermons he talked about was the sermon, the serpent's info, Info Marshall given back on 11.23, and then on March 7th, he gave a sermon he, he t- entitled Context in History, and then they, I, I subtitled it, Don't Let Technology Mislead You. And he used a, a, one example as a picture is worth a thousand words, but he reminded us that a picture is simply an instant in time. It doesn't give you context of what happened before that picture or what happened after that picture was taken. And that we, as we read the Bible and study it, we need to understand the context of what is recorded there. We know the before and the after. And he talked about how many, you know, why did why did the Book of Ruth in the book in the Bible where it is that there's 
there are things to be learned about the context. And we shouldn't let the fact that we have smartphones, we have computers and tablets and what all, that smartphones don't make us smart. Smartphones just give us a lot of data, give us a lot of information. But how we use that information can help determine whether or not we're being wise and using good judgment and whether or not we're smart about the information and the knowledge that it may provide. Also, in the uh, fairly recent Living Church News in January and February, he wrote the editorial, uh, Was Are You Fooled by the Devil's Infomercial? And uh, then the personal, Was Loving the World versus Loving God? Both of them focusing in on the fact that Satan is out to deceive you and me. He's out to distract us. And the modern world in which we live can easily do that because of the technology that is all around us that all of us use to one degree or another. And the point is that some of us play with this technology probably entirely too much. Now, he pointed out that technology certainly has its place in our modern life. After all, we use that technology in order to preach the gospel to the world. However, it's one of those features of our world that can also have a downside. We can watch too much TV. Or we can watch the wrong kinds of things on TV. We can watch we can watch the wrong kinds of movies, for that matter. Well, the wrong kind of entertainment. Uh, we can become hooked on social media uh, to the point that it consumes much too much of our time during the day. It can become sort of a an idol, if you will. And we spend so much time, and as, as he's mentioned, sometimes it's the first thing people do, many of us do, in the morning to find out what is what kind of messages or emails we may have received from our friends. And not be the first thing we do is go talk to our, our God and our Father. It can be distracting. And of course, we can also misuse social media. We can transmit things that are not appropriate. We can access things in our social media and so in computers and internet that certainly are not appropriate. Now, I realize that many of our young people have grown up with the internet being a reality their entire lives. They've never known any other way. And many of them yearn for the time they can have their own phone or their own computer. And in many cases, for school purposes, where many of our children are homeschooled, certainly using that technology for that purpose, a computer, that's a good use of the technology. But how young our children have, uh, have their own phones, how much time they use it, is up to, up, to, up to us to manage. Technology is everywhere in the world, and it's to be used and enjoyed in a proper way. Technology has been brought a lot of convenience and benefits to mankind, but can also be abused if we, again, let the entertainment that's out there that is far from acceptable, if we let that entertainment encroach 
upon our lives. In fact, some of the use of technology, as I said, talking about social media, can become addictive. And even some of the creators, these what are referred to as technology moguls or tech moguls, they've admitted that the, the, you know, the offerings or the, uh, the product that they engineered, they designed, and the software they wrote, it was designed to pull people in, to want to make them want to use that, to get some sort of emotional reaction and some sort of emotional upper you know, uh, uh, on it or from it in order to get them to use that product, use that software more and more. But we've also had many of those, or I'll say several, of those tech moguls who readily admit that they don't allow their children much access to that technology. Stephen Jobs, uh, who was over Apple and invented the uh, Apple computer, one of, one of the inventors, mentioned that his children, this is before he died, that his children had never been on an iPad. Never. And there are others who have, at least one other one, mentioned that their children were not allowed to have a smartphone until their middle teens. And many of them talk about regulating how many hours of screen time they're allowed each day. And they limit it to one hour or an hour and a half or two hours and then they also monitor what kind of screen time that is to make sure it's constructive because they realize that the wrong kind of screen time and too much screen time is simply not good for their children. And they have the, the stamina in order to oversee their children's behavior. One example for that is, is, is Facebook. Now, I'm not on Facebook. But uh, here a while back, a friend of mine showed me a few selfies that were out there on Facebook. Uh, face selfies of some of our young people, uh, or, or teenagers, maybe uh, young adults uh, in the church. And I would like you to please understand that this example I'm about to give is not necessarily representative of all of our young people. I don't mean that. And it's, I'm not saying it's prevalent. But however, it does illustrate the point that this is one of the things that we need to manage, we need to supervise with our young people. Even our older teens need supervision. This selfie was of a young lady. Again, a young lady in the church. I don't know how old she was or is. But she was, she had this selfie, and it was my first thought to say that this, this, she was in a come hither pose. And I was told that many of our young people might not even know what a young hither look is. But in reality, what it was, was it was suggestive. Now that was my, my reaction. Now I can't impute that it was deliberate on this young person's part to do that. Now, nonetheless, it was suggestive. It wasn't hard to figure out that it was suggestive because of the likes that she received from other people who saw the picture. One of which, one, one adult, as a matter of fact, one adult 
in the church responded, you're hot. Now, I think all of us know what that would imply. Now, the image, again, was inappropriate. I don't, I can't impute motive on, on, on her part, and it's not my point. It was simply that was, it turned out to be inappropriate. And it was out there for her friends to see and to comment. That's just one example. And again, what was surprising was the many, or some of the likes, I wouldn't say many, but some of the likes were from adults, members of the church, parents that were complimenting her on the picture. So why would she think it was wrong when there are baptized members, adults, who are complimentary? Complimenting her on, on, on the, on the selfie. So it's just a, a thought, I'm asking myself, where, where were the parents? And why were, you know, why was it not supervised? Uh, where there was a, uh, why should, would she think in, why would she think it was not appropriate when other, other adults or adults were giving her kudos, if you will, for the picture? Now, personally, I have had on at least one occasion where one young person uh, showed me, and it doesn't matter whether it was here or somewhere else, but one person, a young person showed me some text that had been received on that person's phone that were clearly inappropriate. They were clearly inappropriate, coming from a baptized member, a young baptized member, indicating something that should not be indicated. So it's out there. Why would why would someone misuse technology to that? My point is it's easily done, can fall can fall prey to that because it's out there so much. Again, I would like to think and I'd like to hope that this is the rare exception. Again, it's, I'm not saying it's prevalent. But it does illustrate the hazard that technology presents to us, to our children. That we need to be aware that, I guess, maybe the selfie phenomenon can be become inappropriate. It can be a little bit of a popularity contest in order to create this. Please look at me. That I'm, you know, look at me. Uh, syndrome as opposed to the right kind of communication between parents, between friends, that uh, it can just become excessive. We don't want that to be the case. Certainly, when used appropriately in a way for our families and our friends, that technology is a good thing. And we've, as we, with this ongoing crisis, we've encouraged our members to stay in touch with one another, to fellowship, uh, either by real phone calls or by text messaging or emails to stay in touch with one another. And so that we feel a part of the church. We are part of God's people. But my point is this, that for members of any age, and it does, this is not just against uh, talking about young people falling prey to this, because even adults can and do fall prey to the misuse of technology because it's Satan's world. And he, anything that it, any invention or any product that has a good use, such as does the internet, 
Satan can find a way to pollute it. He can find a way to tear it down and put it into far worse use than it was intended by many or by the creators. So when we ask ourselves, you know, are we really careful? Are we listening? Or, or when we hear Mr. Weston in multiple sermons, at least two, and he's mentioned this in other sermons in prior, in, in last year, then we say, yes, Mr. Weston, I hear you. But I have this under control. I'm, I'm not addicted to the, to the social media. I'm not addicted to the internet. I've got it under control. And because it's mentioned more than once, and we just say, well, I've got it under control. And they move on without taking the time to realize that if, if Christ is inspiring this message to be given to us more than once, if there is an echo from Jesus Christ through his ministry, through his, the leader of his work and, and at this time, then maybe, just maybe, this is something that all of us need to pay very close attention to. That we need to be examining ourselves about how we use the technology that has right uses, but how are we using it? Is it excessive? Is it inappropriate? Because Christ may be, in these two sermons, again leading up to the Passover season, to the Holy Day season, these two sermons and these articles are right in the time when we are preparing for this Holy Day season. Then maybe Christ is telling us at this time we need to examine ourselves, especially in this regard. Because the servant he has chosen to lead the work is telling us in a very sober tone, we need to be in control of technology, not vice versa. We don't want the technology to control our lives and where we use it excessively or inappropriately. Why would any of us pray that God would inspire what is done, what is the work is performed by Mr. Weston? Again, it could apply to any of the, of the leaders that I've mentioned. But in particular, if we're praying for Mr. Weston, and we ask God to inspire what he says and what he writes, decisions he makes. Why would we then turn, maybe not deliberately, but casually turn a deaf ear to what he has to say? Again, at least in my mind, there's an echo going all the way back to that sermon, at, sermon back in the latter part of 2019 right up to the sermon he gave recently and the articles he's written in the Living Church News. There's an echo where God, Jesus Christ, is trying to draw our attention to something that we need to manage, we need to change, we need to govern, and we need to control. Are we listening to what Christ is inspiring? We're not just listening to a man. We're listening to a man that is inspired by God to teach us about his way and give us the right kind of warnings about character and how we should manage to serve the example and to step up to the example of Jesus Christ. In closing, let's turn to a couple of scriptures. Let's back in First Timothy, chapter one.
I'm sorry, I think it's 2 Timothy chapter 1. Yes, 2 Timothy chapter 1. In just this one verse, verse 13, Paul writing to Timothy and he's reminding Timothy the responsibility he has as a young evangelist to do his job. But his words, the word, what he writes to Timothy certainly applies to every one of us today. He says in verse 13, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So he's admonishing Timothy to hold fast what he heard from Paul, what Paul had taught him. And we are admonished the same thing. When we hear the words the sound words, the sound doctrine, the sound instruction coming from those that God has chosen to lead us. We should hold them fast. We should hold, cling to them and do that in love, in love for them, in love for the right, the privilege of knowing the truth and in faith that this is going to help us become like Jesus Christ. And then in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Verse 9, Paul writing to the Philippians, which was a very stable church. But he does remind them here at Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. He says, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. We want God to be with us. We want the God of peace to lead us, give us peaceful lives. But he, we are admonished to take hold of the things that those that he's put in, in positions of leadership, what they teach us, what we hear from them. Take those as the words coming from God the Father and Jesus Christ and inspired through the power of his Holy Spirit. Then... In Psalm 119, Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verse 66, Psalm 119, verse 66, he says, Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. And what's recorded here for us is we are asking God to help us absorb His Word, the instruction we receive from His servants, and we learn how to apply it in a right judgment, good judgment and knowledge. We have information given to us. We want to absorb the knowledge and be able to apply it in a righteous way, to apply His commandments with good taste and with discernment. And finally, over in Ephesians, chapter 4, well-known scripture for all of us. Ephesians chapter 4, just a reminder of exactly why we have leaders in God's church and why he put them in the places that he did. God ordained them for those, into those positions by his power and gives them the gifts and the support they need. Verse 11 Ephesians 4, 
And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. To do so, he put them in place for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up, the strengthening of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That he has ordained ministry and the leaders that he's, he's placed over his work so that we, you and I, can reach a point that we are a perfect man. And what that means is a complete man. And we're not lacking any major element of Christianity. That we are a perfect man. We are a complete man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That when people see us, certainly when the other Christians, that they can see Christ in us. And that kind of instruction that we pray for God to give and for Christ to give to Mr. Weston and the other the other leaders, we need to be listening. Are we listening? You and I need to be listening. And any, any answer to that question, but yes, would be unacceptable. So let's watch more diligently, more carefully than we ever have, looking for the ends of the age so that we can discern these signs. We look for them carefully. Let's review the Ten Commandments and ask ourselves the hard questions about how well we are doing in each each one of them, in each aspect. And finally, let's listen and respond to Jesus Christ and those He has chosen and placed in positions to teach us, especially in this area of technology. I hope that all of you have a special Passover in three days and a very profitable and enjoyable Feast of Unleavened Bread. Good afternoon.